Great. So if you are under a certain age, like I guess primary school, you're leaving? Or, or do I just look like you want to leave? This is planned, right? It's just all of a sudden this exodus. Uh, great. Uh, nice to see you. You're all looking very beautiful today. We are having a great experience of Banbury so far. I've never been here before, uh, but everyone's been very lovely. So I'm pleased to be speaking to you, and I'm looking forward to seeing what God has for all of us today. So shall we pray first? Father, I thank you uh, that you have a word for each of us. Thank you that you want to speak to us, that you are seeking us, that you're interested in being with us and in transforming us. So Lord, use the uh, fragile words that I have and use your spirit in our hearts to speak to us today. In Jesus' name, amen. We love uh, being with you guys. We love experiencing worship together with new friends. We love getting to uh, know new churches. And just before the service, I was having chats with David and Margaret and Stefan and Shannon about their amazing love stories interconnected. And I love this, coming to uh, new churches and finding out all the amazing testimonies uh, that people have and finding out how you worship and what your passions are and what you're excited about. And many of you might be super excited when Sunday morning swings around too. Yes, I get to come to church. I get to meet with my sisters and brothers in the Lord. I love singing worship together. I love praying together. I love hearing teaching together. 10,000 years and then forevermore sounds like a dream to you because you just love worshiping God in this way. But then when Monday morning comes, you may feel a little blue. Because what is work and everyday life compared with the heights of the glory in church? And maybe you think of your job as the place that you go uh, or your uh, hobbies that you go to make money to bring to church or just spend your time until church comes around again. Or maybe you're the opposite. I'm guessing having Stefan here and his past in LICC, he's given you the full spiel about whole life discipleship, has he? Yes, yes, yes. Great. And maybe you go to work or to the leisure center with a bounce in your step on, Sunday, on Monday morning. Maybe you know that your ordinary life serves a greater purpose. And you might even love your job. But then comes Sunday and it feels irrelevant. Maybe you're not a lover of singing. Um, maybe you can't wait to get out there on Monday uh, for what feels more like reality to you. Now, I don't know if you find yourself in either of these two extremes this morning, or more likely somewhere in between, probably. We all kind of swing, don't we, to what we love and what we feel passionate about. But wherever you find yourself this morning, uh, the passage that we are going to read, I just realized we haven't actually read the passage, uh, is... Uh, from Colossians 3, and this, uh, there will be a word for you uh, today. Now, I don't have a Bible. I was kind of assuming there was going to be a reading. Forgot about that. Who's got a physical Bible? This is a test. Anyone? Great. David, you come and read it. This is David, everybody. He's my new friend. So, Colossians 3. Oh, is that it? This is in the second half of the Bible. There we go. All right, let me, let me see which words I meant to have. So 
uh, it is from, which translation is this, by the way? Is it King, New King James. Okay, does anyone have an NIV? This is going to help us. Yeah, okay, bring us an NIV. It's just I'm, I'm, I'm quoting. You can still read. This is good. This is interactive, what everybody. Read the NIV do? Uh, yeah, we, that would be helpful because I'm, I'm kind of quoting from it. So just forgot some that we haven't had a reading, actually. <laughs> this is helpful. Wow. This is a fancy one with holes. Uh, Every okay? Good. I'll just preach on. Just a little bit of encouragement from everybody. Say, hey, hallelujah, and praise the Lord, and uh, glory be. Thank you. Sorry. Uh, can you, can you see this? Oh, this bit here. 15 to 17. The print is very small. Okay, do you want me to read? You better. Yeah. Right. Thank you, David. Well, let's give David a big clap. <laughs> That's brilliant. So all we're going to do is we're going to read from Colossians 3 in tiny writing. Uh, and it is uh, verses 15 to 17. And then we're going to read verse 23 to 24. Okay, you ready? Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to, the God, to God the Father through him. And then we're jumping to verse 23. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Amen. Thank you. I'll put it here. Do you want it? So I miss my little runner. Thanks. Great. So there is a word for each of you in that text. But before we get into the text, I'm going to uh, tell you a little story. Uh, about four years ago, we decamped to Sweden as a family. I am from Sweden, and we went there for a year to uh, write our book, Whole Life Worship, which is what this whole weekend has been based on. Now, removing your whole family from one country to another country is, as you can imagine, quite an undertaking. And it required us to complete a whole host of quite mundane tasks. What to do with all our stuff was one question. For everything we owned, we had to ask a question. Should we bring it? Should we put it in storage? Should we leave it for the tenants to wreck? Or shall we get rid of it? One of these things uh, was Sam's childhood computer, a, an Atari ST, which he had kept for, I don't know, sentimental reasons, I guess. Uh, and I believe that his parents had recently lost patience with uh, storing it for him, and they'd inconveniently dropped it at our house. So we had to make a decision. And out of these choices we had, Sam thankfully decided to get rid of it. And so he put it on eBay. Now you might be thinking, Sarah, this is quite a dull story. Do you really not have any more exciting anecdotes to tell us this morning? The thing is, it was quite a mundane event, especially in light of the much larger, more exciting process of moving countries. But one phone call changed all of this. Because the old computer sold on eBay for £50, that's the result, 
And in the phone conversation with the buyer, it transpired that the Atari had been bought by Pinewood Studios to feature in the new Jason Bourne movie. And the computer was subsequently picked up, like the movie star it now was, in a chauffeur-driven Bentley, which was normally used for driving around the movie's actors. A little speck of glamour into our otherwise ordinary, boring world. And all of a sudden, our view of the Atari computer and the dull life admin task of getting rid of it changed. It was bathed in a golden Hollywood glow all of a sudden. The actual task of getting rid of the Atari, this thing, hadn't changed. But because we know, now saw that this thing had a greater purpose, appearing in a blockbuster movie, our attitude towards it changed. What had been mundane, dull, even annoying, became exciting, glamorous and thrilling. I remembered this event as I was looking at the passage that we had chosen for the service today. Because in this passage I just read, Paul encourages us to change our current perspective of the dull and mundane parts of our lives, to get excited by the greater purpose, the deeper meaning of these same aspects. I don't know about you, but often when we are in conversations about the meaning of life, about our purpose, we perhaps picture kind of grand, lofty ideals of being at peace with ourselves and with the world, very cerebral and spiritual. Whereas in this passage, Paul shows us that the meaning of life might well lie in those mundane tasks, in our daily choices, in our scrubbing of the floor and the composing of the emails. So let's find our way back to Colossians, if you'd like to uh, keep it open in your Bibles. Paul is, at this point, describing to the church in Colossae what it looks like to be a Christian and to be in Christian community. Right at the beginning of the letter, see, this is much easier if you have an actual book to flick through, but some of you will be scrolling. But right at the beginning of the letter, we can read uh, about how pleased Paul is to hear of the church's faith and the growth and the fruit that this church is producing. So this isn't a letter like the letter to the Galatians, if you've read that, which is full of scolding by Paul. But he has heard about this church, and he has heard about the risk uh, that they are falling for a particularly timeless temptation. The temptation of bringing their old life into their new Christian faith. For the Jewish believers, the temptation to habitually follow the old restrictive laws was, of course, very real. They had grown up with, don't do that, don't eat that, and they still heard these messages from their Jewish families. And at the same time, the Greek section of the church brought their own baggage into church. And this is what Paul calls human tradition and hollow and deceptive philosophy in chapter 2, verse 8. The same temptation, different consequences, but they were all damaging to the church and to these new Christians' baby faith. But what Paul is overall calling this church to is a focus on Jesus Christ. When I was kind of skimming through the text, I could see the leading up to the passage we had read in uh, chapter 3, Paul crams almost every single verse full of truth about Jesus. 
He starts with a beautiful poem halfway through chapter 1. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. He is above all, he's before all things, and in him all things hold together, and so on. And he's also the head of the church, verse 18, and God's fullness dwells in him. All things is reconciled to God through him, and Christ in us is the hope of glory, and in him is hidden all treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And as believers, we are rooted and built up in Christ, and Christ is the head over every power and authority. It's with Christ we are buried in baptism and raised to new life. Through Christ, our sins were forgiven, and Christ disarmed the powers and the authorities, making a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them on the cross. And then, in chapter 2, verse 16, comes the first, Therefore... So anything that Paul writes from this point onwards, the various warnings and rules for holy living, are all based on this beautiful kind of all-encompassing affirmation of who Jesus is and what his work on the cross means for us globally and for us personally. And in our verses in chapter 3 from verse 15 are some instructions of how to be church together, but they are all built on this foundation of who we are in Christ. First, we are told to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, since as members of one body, we are called to peace. I loved reading about the word peace uh, in the Greek here, because the, the word is eirene, probably, you know, pronouncing that wrong, but there we have it. It comes from a word, uh, word uh, a verb, aero, which means joining or fixing together that which has been broken or separated. So arena, the word for peace, paints a picture of everything as it should be. Broken things put back together, everything in its right place. This is the peace that we are called to. How is this peace working out in Banbury through the People's Church? This piece of broken things being put back together. This kind of peace, the peace of Christ, in whom you remember all things hold together, is to rule in our hearts. And the kind of rule in this uh, verse here is less like a king and more like an arbitrator, like a referee. Let the peace of Christ sit there in your heart exalted uh, as a tennis umpire, calling foul when he needs to, and putting broken things back together, reconciling you to God and us to one another. And that, in verse 15, is a good reason to be thankful. And then comes this verse, which we so often hear quoted in worship context. Well, we do, at least, because we go around and we talk about worship a lot. It says, let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. This verse, of course, comes up when we speak about worship because it mentions singing. And often that's what we mean when we say worship. 
and it does encourage singing together as thanksgiving. This should come as a great encouragement for anyone here who loves singing in church. Music is such an amazing gift to us, and singing is such a rare vehicle for our worship, something that we can do together, old and young, male and female, rich and poor, and be united in. It's hard to find better ways to be fully united in offering our thanksgiving to God as a church than singing in worship. Now, almost every Bible translation you care to look at translates this verse differently. That's why I rejected your uh, new uh, King James there, David. Uh, but in my old NIV Bible at home that I was using when I was writing this because our internet was down, <laughs> the translators have added in an and in the middle, separating the verse into the teaching part and the singing part. This is a choice made as there's no and in the Greek. There's another translation called the NRSV, on the other hand, and they stick a big full stop in the middle instead, making the separation even greater. Now, the New Testament Greek doesn't actually have punctuation, so, of course, to help us read it, the translators will kind of have to make those choices. But a lot of choices made by Bible translators are by nature subjective. And the separation between teaching and singing is really one that we often teach by our practice in church. Sometimes the singing part is treated as inconsequential in our services. Something that it doesn't really matter if people turn up halfway through, or maybe something to help us take up the collection in an easier way, or sometimes, obviously never in this church, but sometimes we find that the singing is treated as a warm-up act to the sermon. And of course, our preaching and our teaching is important too. It's really difficult to talk about you know, the Greek translation of a verb in a song. Um, but the better translation of this verse, which is the one that I quoted here, doesn't separate out the singing and the teaching as if they're two wholly different aspects to church life. Instead, the translators have acknowledged that the most likely meaning of Paul's words requires us to add a through here, although the more literal way would be to add a with. The psalm songs and spiritual songs are one of the ways in which we can learn, one of the ways in which the message of Christ can dwell in us, can move in and make a home in our hearts. Sermons and lectures teach us in one way. Uh, we hear words, you will hear me, and you will have different abilities to kind of retain and apply the information. But music and the arts teach us in a totally different way. Uh, I was watching uh, a TV show the other day where people had to, under time pressure, replicate the rainbow from memory in form of ice lollies. Uh, and most of them, because they were kind of under time pressure and they were panicking, they started going red and yellow and pink and green, orange and purple and blue, and then recreating the colors that they remember from this childhood song. And this, despite the fact that it's actually factually wrong, and we probably all know somewhere that it's more like red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet, right? And your science teacher telling you about the colors of the rainbow might be a great lesson. And you might even uh, understand the science of optics behind the rainbow. You might be a scientist. 
But when under pressure in a competitive situation, you're probably, just like these people on TV, likely to fall back on a factually incorrect nursery rhyme. The songs we sing to one another and with one another in church teaches us. It's not enough to, te uh, to treat the songs as a warm-up to the sermon. Because when we find ourselves under pressure, for whatever reason, it's the songs that we've sung week in, week out in church that bubbles up to the surface. Even if you had a great sermon last year about suffering, it's the song that you will remember. And that's why it's so important that we use songs that shape us well. So we need to teach each other in song and also offer our thankful praise to God in song, allowing the message of Christ to dwell in us, encountering him as we sing. So far, so, so churchy, right? But then comes Paul's big and. And this time, the word and is there in the original Greek. So verse 17 says, and whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Whatever you do. I wonder, what does that include? Does it include teaching and singing in church? Yeah, I think it does. Does it include cleaning my car? I suppose it does. Does it include talking to my children? Yeah, that kind of seems to fall within the whatever thing. Does it include choosing to recycle? Yeah, I guess it does. Paul starts by talking about worship in the gathered kind of micro sense about the teaching and the singing we do together, the stuff of church. And then he widens it and he opens it right up, showing us that worship is not just a church building gathered type thing it's a whole life thing it's a whatever you do whether in word or deed kind of thing this verse just explodes our otherwise tiny thoughts about worship to help us understand that we can work in the name of the lord jesus giving thanks to god the father through him whether we're a plumber a preacher or a preschool teacher we can care for our family, we can care for the environment, uh, we can care for our, our communities as our personal response of praise to God. We can stand for public office, we can use our retirement well, we can be a good friend. All of these things, whatever we do, can we worship, can glorify our Father in heaven. And this is one of those perspective-changing truths that I spoke of in the beginning. And Paul further develops this thought in those last couple of verses that I jumped to in instruction uh, to the slaves of the congregation. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Now, before uh, we start applying these words to our own lives, many of us might well snag uh, on the word slave in this passage. We would prefer it if Paul said, all slaves must be set free. That's my instructions to you. And he doesn't say that. 
from trying to kind of understand the context, it seems to me that uh, being a slave in this time, although a horrible thing and a, you know, something we don't believe is okay, it was kind of almost equivalent to being a worker. Because any work that needed to be done, farming, transportation, building, and even things like teaching and medical care was done by slaves. But Paul is, however, revolutionary in that he speaks directly in this passage to children, to women, and to slaves, who would normally not even be addressed. And he also gives directions to the masters of the slaves and telling them to do what is right and fair, which they were, of course, under no obligation to do, no legal obligation. But Paul says that if you're under Christ, this is your obligation. So I think we can read these verses and we can think about how it applies to our work as worship. Now, I'm pretty good at the theory of this. I know that the small and mundane things that I do in life, uh, from cleaning the microwave to feeding the children, are really acts of worship of the king. It's the Lord Christ you're serving. But in the midst of everyday life, I do forget. I whine about having to clean up someone's spilled cereal on the floor and complain about being the one who always has to mow the lawn. I fall for the same temptations that the Colossians fell for. Bringing the stuff of my old life, the rants you read on Mumsnet, the gossip offered in the work coffee room, the entitlement that I carry as a child of the 80s that I deserve everything on a silver platter. I carry all of that into my new life in Christ. Earlier in the letter, Paul says, since you died with Christ, to the basic principle of this world, why, as though you still belong to it, do you submit to its rules? And the rules might say, if you end up being the one mowing the lawn all the time, you have the right to complain about it. But I'm a new creation in Christ. And it says, since then you've been raised with Christ, set your heart on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. So although I understand the theory I sometimes fail to actually, whatever I do, work at it with all my heart, as if working for the Lord. And this is why I found Sam's Atari story so helpful. Do you remember the computer? It's a mundane task, suddenly aglow with excitement because of its association with Hollywood. I also remembered, as I thought about this, how different my cleaning is of my house when my parents are about to come and visit. Now, you might think that's a negative thing. There is a way I clean my house when my mother-in-law is coming, and that's not a happy story. But when my parents come and visit, I have a totally different attitude. Because my parents live in Sweden, it happens maybe every other year that they come and visit, and I get so excited. And as I clean and I set the house up, I find myself thinking things like, I can't wait to show my mum this new rug that I bought. I better clean it so that I can kind of show it to her and she, you know, won't sneeze. And, um, or I know that the thing that matters most to my mum is a good night's sleep, so I kind of move all the pillows around so that she gets the best pillow. Or I hoover around the plug and I see that it's loose and I think, oh, I must remember to show my dad because he will be able to fix that for me. On an ordinary week, I have none of those thoughts when I clean, none of that excitement in the cleaning. You might share similar stories. 
a bakery suddenly receiving an order from Buckingham Palace, for example, and the extra care that goes into that particular cake. Or maybe an accountancy firm asked to prepare a report for Sir Elton John and his personal finance. How would that make you treat that mundane task differently? Now, can I find a way to know the thrill of the association of the King of Kings to my filing, my washing up, my budgeting? Can you see whatever you do in your week, whether you're in paid employment, whether you're a student, a pensioner, someone who works in the home or you're unemployed? Can you find a way to see that these things can be worship when we understand that it's the Lord Christ we are serving, when we do the things in the name of Christ? And what does it mean to do things in the name of Christ? I think it means to do them in the style of Jesus, in the power of Jesus, and for the glory of Jesus. And I'm going to have a short moment to reflect on what it means to bring our whole lives as worship to God in this way. But first of all, I want to share a couple of pictures that I had when I was listening to God for this morning. The first one was of an iceberg, where the visible part of the iceberg is our corporate church worship, the stuff we do together, our singing, our preaching, and our praying. But the parts under the water, under the surface, is our whole life worship, the larger part of our lives, the foundation of what we do together. The second picture was of a pretty flower with a huge root system underneath. Again, the top part was our church worship, beautiful, glorifying to God, and also taking the nutrition from the sunlight, right? So our meeting together is taking the power from meeting with God. But the root system was our whole life of worship, much, much larger, bringing the life and nurture to the smaller part, keeping the smaller part balanced and rooted. And the third picture was a little warning. Um, <laughs> the church worship can be a bit like wearing a wig, if we're not careful. It might look like the real thing, just like our singing and praying in church can look like real deep devotion and service to Christ. It's not hard to make yourself look like a devoted worshiper. But when the storms came in my picture, the wig flew off, uh, leaving nothing at all. And we need to live lives of worship, offering up our whatever we do to Christ, not just the one hour on a Sunday morning. So that when storms hit us, we are not left bare. Our worship isn't just the outward stuff of songs and words, but deeper and more whole. Amen. Amen. We're coming towards the end of our service. We are going to sing a song in a moment, but before we do that, I just want to take one minute for you to reflect. Is there something coming up this week? Is there a task? Is there a job? Is there an interaction with someone where you're really you're not looking forward to it, not feeling good about it. What would it look like if you did it in the name of Christ, if you did it in the style of Jesus, in the power of Jesus, and for the glory of Jesus? How would that change that very ordinary and maybe even difficult interaction, difficult task? Maybe just close our eyes, choose one uh, thing for this week, and just ask God, God, what would it look like if I did that? as worship in the name of Christ.